This is Maya Thomas, the producer of the DSC podcast. DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. Hello and welcome to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations. My name is Evie Norfell and I'm joined in the studio by... Roland Norfell and our producer... Maya Thomas. And today we learned how to say our name properly with Silvana <laughs> Marmik. Silvana is the CEO of the early intervention organisation Plumtree, based in Sydney. So here's the interview with Silvana. We hope you like it. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability, Disability done, done different, different candid conversations. Hope you are ready because we're starting. Welcome, Silvana. Hello, thank you. We had a party recently and Evie was introducing herself and she introduces herself differently to how I introduce myself in saying our last name because we come from a Lebanese background and it's, we're going to talk to you, I'm sure, in this podcast about your background as well. How would you say our name, N-A-U-F-A-L? Naufal. Yay. <laughs> That's very different to how we say it. It's how my brother says it. My brother is um, full Lebanese and he says it, but, I, I, you know, Evie can't say it. None of her sisters can say it like that. My so. partner says Nafafal. <laughs> <laughs> and mostly it's it's been Norfal. So, sadly, my story was in, in, in primary school, my best friend was um, – Robert Winky, so it was awful, awful, and stinky winky. <laughs> but anyway, let's move on to the podcast. So we've got so much to talk about, and um, so many areas we could could go to. Silvana, this coming June, we're very, very excited. We're running a national conference called "Get Your Strategy Together." Gist, and one of the key issues that's sure to come up in that is workforce. And it seems to me and to the sector that you're taking a different approach to workforce. When I looked at your website, doing research for this podcast and getting to know you better, there was a few professionals here and a few professionals there, and then a very long list of um, peer workers and allied health assistants. So you're taking a different approach to workforce, is that fair to say? Uh, yes, it is. So um, I've, um, uh, I, I guess, my perspective is really coming as a parent uh, of a young man who has a disability as well, and I, I think that in the current environment that we've really started to look at uh, workforce um, in early childhood intervention, really examining, uh, you know, where is our workforce right now in the early intervention field? Uh, what is the ideal workforce in in early childhood intervention? What kinds of roles make uh, the biggest impact? And um, really sort of challenging uh, the, the sort of prevalent um, sort of belief, I guess, uh, that uh, therapists are, are the only um, people who deliver early childhood intervention. And so that has really taken us along a pathway of reinvigorating the role of educators in our organisation, but introducing two new workforces. Uh, one is our therapy assistants and the other is peer workers. So let's spend a bit of time on that, um, Silvana, because it's, it's so important. And what you just said, as you know, is an incredible mouthful because you've covered off um, new approaches to early childhood, early intervention, or early childhood intervention is probably the better way to say it, but also new approaches to workforce. So c can we start with peers and then work our way backwards to the actual approach you're taking to working in the space? But just for listeners that don't know much about early childhood. In some ways, it's a very different sector to the rest of disability, isn't it? Uh, yes. So I guess um, rather than the focus being only the child, 
the focus um, should be the whole family and then uh, as well the family within their natural environment, within their community and really acknowledging all of the informal supports that families start out with and not not um, negatively influencing those but preserving those and harnessing those and working really in a family-centred way. So taking a holistic approach to the child within family and the divergence that you're talking about and, and what we've known to be best practice for 20 or 30 years now in disability or in early childhood, the sort of thing you're doing is saying it's not just about doing therapeutic interventions to the child to make them better. Exactly. What is it about? Well, it's about uh, really looking at how the whole family engages with the with the child and preserving family routines and preserving relationships, building really strong interactions and engagements uh, with, uh, with you know with all of the family members. That also includes the siblings and taking that much more holistic approach as the child within the family rather than just fix the child. And I guess that is that is a, a critical change that has happened over the last, you know, twenty five or so years in early childhood intervention is that we have moved away from uh, focusing on the child and their deficits, but really looking at uh, much more from the almost you could akin you know more akin to the social model of disability where we say the natural environment for the child is the family that's their environment let's look at sort of adapting that environment and other environments that children are in so when you talk about a 25 year journey in the in the changes of early childhood early intervention that's also the journey you've been on with your son more or less isn't it uh, I, I guess, uh, yeah, that is a, a good point. So my son, uh, Karim, is um, just turned 30, uh, and uh, and uh, we were very fortunate that when he was uh, diagnosed with a delay in his development when he was just sort of under, you know, under three years old, that we were connected with um, an early intervention uh, group at, at Macquarie University back then who had had really transformed what they were doing and, and were experimenting with it experimenting with this new concept um, called family-centeredness and it was about working in partnership with us so that um, that we were doing what we needed to do in our everyday family lives to support Karim's development, who he was as a person, focusing in on that and focusing on a in on our skills and capabilities and confidence as confidence as family members to to feel like we can we can do this. Professionals are here today and gone tomorrow, but we're going to be the best people to invest in because we'll be there to support him in the long term. So Silvana, you're really starting to touch on some of the edgy bits of early childhood intervention where uh, uh, some practitioners and a lot of um, the allied health professionals really want to focus on working on the child and other parts of the sector are saying, no, we've really got to take a broader focus on child and family. The NDIS has come along and its focus doesn't really support child and family, does it? Well, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, on that, uh, Roland, um, 48% of participants in the NDIS scheme at the moment are children 18 years and under mm. and for those children families are the most important influence in their lives they're the people who'll be making the decisions for them and um and it's 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 the family who as the, in, in that context are going to be the most influential in how funding uh decisions are made and all sorts of other decisions about how that child will be um you know growing up and and the opportunities and, and the way that they are being supported so the family themselves then are going to be the, the one that, I, in my opinion, where the most amount of investment needs to go. 
It's the, the one constant, isn't it, in a family, um, any family's life is the family itself, the parents, they're there for the journey. One of the things that's always bothered me is the, the it's a sort of bracket creep in disability advocacy, which is adults with disabilities should be speaking on their own behalves wherever possible. And I, I don't think we argue with that, but that somehow creeps down into the children's area where we're expecting young children who don't make decisions in their own families independently anyway that somehow we're expecting young children with a disability to have independent voices and advocates are speaking on their behalves as if they're not members of families. Am I taking that too mm. far or? No, I, I think that's, that's a fair assumption. And I guess uh, I, I've got to sort of say that I have learned so much from colleagues in the advocacy space who have really educated me. And my, my perception is working in, in the you know other age range with early childhood, There there is no one that really is, making those messages transparent and clear to families. And I think that's where the gap is. We can't have an independent, independent, capable 18-year-old unless somebody, and in my opinion, that's the family, has had a very big part in understanding where they need to head with their child uh, by the time they're 18. What do you want to achieve? And how as a family, how as a parent, um, how the rest of the community, how you can harness your community to help your son or daughter get to where they need to be because they mm. don't just pop out independent and capable at 18. Yeah. Something has to happen in the interim. And right now I'd argue that we don't have a comprehensive, strategic, funded approach where families are getting these messages at the earliest possible point. Right now it's your child will never walk, they'll never talk, they'll never attend their local school. You know, I'm sorry your child has this disability. You know, here are some professionals who can help you. you off you go. And and I'd argue that that's not the right messaging that we need to give to families in the very beginning. Yeah. We need to really reframe that conversation about how we're having that first um, conversation with families, what we're, um, you know, what we're telling them that they should be headed for, um, you know, inspiring them and, and, and creating some hope um, and, and encouraging them to think of a life of opportunity for their son or daughter and follow that up with lots of practical opportunities to learn how to do that. And I think families are best placed to be building that, but for them to build that for their child, they really need somebody to, building, to be building that for themselves. So, Evie, can you jump in here and tell us where the problem is that we're talking about? So why is it that the NDIS price guide for one of, that's the, the Bible in a sense, doesn't support a holistic approach to families? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's the price guide where the flaw lies in some ways. And Silvana, you probably know a lot more about this than I do. So correct me if I'm wrong. In some ways, I think this is one of the failures to implement the promise of the NDIS into practice. I think if we really looked at the insurance principles, a family centered approach that looked at building the skills of the informal supports, um, and, you know, building towards a good life, exactly as you say, Silvana, taking that long-term approach, that that is very, very much in line with what the NDIS was supposed to create. But in a day-to-day -day sense or a year-to-year -year sense, we're not seeing that translate into planning. And I can only imagine that's because in the short term, it's more expensive right now to invest in a three-year-old, you know, knowing that they're like, they'll, once be, they'll one day be a, a, a 12, 18, 30, 40-year-old. You know, we're trying to keep the three-year-old's package as small as possible and not having that long-term view that the NDIS was designed to bring. Does that resonate at all, Silvana? Sure. I, I would agree. I'd say that scheme uh, design was always about intending to have that insurance-based approach. And, and, and for me, I, I think that that is very much a capability-building approach. But we all recognise that right now um, that um, there's only, you know, the investment in 
in, in capability building through the information linkages and capacity, that's really very young and, and not very sophisticated yet. So there, there will hopefully be in the future some improvements in the way the scheme funds capability building. But in terms of children more specifically, my view is that individual funding can be uh, family-centred, but the NDIS funding model has to value and be based on family-centredness. And that will then allow families to use it in ways that meet their unique ways. So, so you are seeing it then as being a, a problem of policy and practice then? Yes, I, I do. I do agree that. But I think I agree with you in the, the intent was always there. But I think somehow in sort of the, the rollout, uh, we've lost our way. But that's very, in my opinion, very retrie- retrievable. Um, but an, an example um, that Currently, packages for uh, children uh, six and under have all their budget in daily living, which Mm. is driving an overly therapeutic approach. It basically means that families can only spend their money on therapy. Now, you know, I've been in early intervention for almost 30 years. When did therapy equal early intervention? We've somehow lost our way over the last, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years with other government, uh, individual funding government systems driving an overly therapeutic approach. So I I just want to jump in there, Silvana, because we know in July this year, the, the minister at least has announced the intention to make core and capacity building budgets flexible, which would mean that those people who ne- didn't necessarily get large core support budgets, I can't speak yet about whether it's going to be any core support budgets, but at least for many families, there should be a large degree of flexibility there. Do you think that'll be a game changer for, for kids oh, and families? Get, get, get game changer. So, so, so absolutely welcome. I, I think that the focus that the minister has announced on, on flexibility and combining those two, um, uh, two, two budgets is is going to be critical in giving families the option now to be able to use their funding in more family-centred ways. So can I add controversy to complexity then and say this is one of the pointy ends, and I know you and I have had this conversation before, Silvana, of control and choice, and we risk um, offending a lot of people here, but let's let's give it a burl. Basically, um, my experience of... um, young parents with younger kids with disabilities your child is first born is there's there's truckloads we don't know and it's obvious the a bit of support may help the child with speech therapy a bit of support may help the child with physiotherapy and in my day parents would spend endless amounts of money on speech pathology and that wasn't always the only intervention that was required but it was the only intervention they could see was needed one of the problems with the NDIS is giving control and choice to people who don't quite yet know what's in the best interests of their child and family. So it's a direct contradiction to what we were talking about before. Families do need to be empowered. Families do need to take control, but don't spend it all on speech pathology. Where do you, mm. Can you help me out here or are you just going to get into trouble too? No, no, I, I'm happy to have this conversation as the individual who runs an organisation who employs a lot of absolutely awesome therapists. So, uh, you know, this isn't a question about therapy is bad. This is a, a question of uh, what is the workforce for early childhood intervention, saying who are the natural kind of people that should be working in this industry, who who connects with children generally. It's educators. Where are the educators right now? They've been downgraded over the last decade in terms of their impact and, and um, you know, capability to offer families a lot because 
educators, early educators, are a part of many children's lives, yet they've somehow been sidelined um, you know, in the disability sector and, and the role of therapists has, re- has really come to the fore. So I think bringing a little bit of balance back uh, to our uh, early childhood intervention field by discussing workforce much more uh, constructively, uh, talking about the makeup, really sort of challenging and being comfortable to say what does a great workforce look like for families of very little children and those children themselves. And uh, as we started off in this conversation, looking at more innovative opportunities and looking at expanding our notion of who should be working in this sector, who are the people that families are dealing with. So that's where our exploration around therapy assistance and peer workers has really been, I think, critical in helping us to just kind of push the boundaries of what we see as good early intervention and a workforce in early intervention. So let's, let's touch on peer workers because... One of the things we keep hearing about the NDIS is it requires 80,000 new workers over a very short period of time. It's a few years and no one knows where that workforce is coming from. Yet one of the great successes of the NDIS is supporting parents of kids with disabilities to return to the workforce because they're getting enough support that they can get back into the workforce. And you're actually tapping into that group of, of workforce potential in, a, in an amazing way. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? I'm almost embarrassed that it's taken me over 25 years to to really sort of explore systematically what the potential for peer work in early childhood intervention is. And, I, and here I want to credit some of my colleagues from the IAC who um, have come from the mental health space, who have really advocates who have helped me to understand the uh, and feel convinced that parents and families as peer workers um, in early childhood in- intervention is, is is important. So we did some research into this area and we sort of have found a few things, which is peer work does offer unique benefits to families of young children with disabilities and, and that's complementary to the kind of services that are already offered, both therapeutic and educational. We also understood that our experience very closely mirrored the experiences of peer work in the mental health space, which is decades further than uh, peer work in early childhood intervention. So it sort of gives us a little signal that we could perhaps learn from the of peer work in the mental health space and um, we don't have to start from scratch in terms of introducing more systematically a peer workforce in early childhood intervention. So it's bringing people um, who've got um, lived experience of parenting kids with disabilities into the workforce and one of the problems we've seen with that in the past is that some of those people are rescuers, Silvana, and I think you'll know what I mean by that, but basically people who feel they have to solve other people's problems, which is not the approach you're after, is it? That's right. It's not enough to sort of say I have a, you know, I, I'm a parent of a child with a disability, so I'm a great peer worker. So there's there there again is a lot we can learn from the mental health sector in terms of recruitment, training, support of, of people who will be employed as peer workers. And and I think that you've raised a very good point is that this isn't about rescuing. This is about helping families not start from the beginning. You know, if we could message with families that, you know, hope and and vision for a a best life, a good life for their child, and then utilise a range of uh, specialist services, but also peer-led services that help them to understand how to get there. It's having that kind of trusted but experienced and trained uh, peer worker within organisations that I think that can influence service design and create opportunities for new services in the future. Yeah. Silvana, recently you and I were at a national roundtable on early childhood intervention and one of the presenters spoke about telehealth. And basically the basic premise was they were supporting families to do um, stuff in the home with the therapist or the person doing the intervention on the other end of the t- 
the telehealth connection. And basically that forced the family to do the work themselves instead of stepping, stepping aside and al allowing the therapist to do the work and going and making a cup of coffee for the therapist and learning nothing. Telehealth was actually better than having the therapist in the room. And it was, for me, that was a bit of a revelation that the technology can actually produce a better outcome by forcing the therapist to do the intervention through the family. Does that make sense? Did that excite you or you probably already know it? Well, yes, it is important because that's, that's the premise of good family-centred practice is coaching families. And I think that, ex that particular example in terms of using technology, um, you know, creates an environment where it's, it's actually difficult for the family to expect that the, the, the specialist is doing the work because you're actually, you know, you're not there. So, so the family are in a, in a, in a true coaching situation and, and you are coaching them. And in terms of just embedding it into an everyday routine, you know, the family are doing it, you, you know, you're modeling it, you're supporting them and refining how they might try it out and then you leave the session sort of you know, inviting them to try it out during the week and then come back and, and, and share how it's, how it's gone for them. So I think that really is a wonderful example of how we can magnify and in, intensify the opportunity for, for practicing uh, these strategies as a part of their everyday routine. That's, how, that's not only a cost, cost effective, it's, it's just, it makes sense for the whole family. That's just great. Thanks, Silvana. I, I want to take us on a little bit of a tangent, Silvana. I hope you won't mind. Um, we have a book club at DSC and we've been reading a book. We've just started reading a book called Far From the Tree. I'm it's a virtual you... book club too. Yeah. Oh, I love that book. You do? Okay, great. So oh. it's a book who's, It's a book that's written by um, by a gay man and I've only – it's a very, very long book. It's a 40-hour audio book. So I've finished the chapter on deaf people and I've just started the one on um, people of short stature and it's, it's significant that he's gay because he makes the parallel um, between the – sort of acceptance and, and cure or conversion um, with, with gay people as kind of an aside. But the, the thing that was very interesting for me in the book that I wanted to test with you is that he speaks to, I think, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of people and families with disabilities. And it's been so interesting to see the role of parents because in about two thirds of the interviews, he speaks solely to the parents and many of the individuals with disability he speaks to reflect on the fact that their disability is just one part of them. And actually it's been a much bigger journey for their parent than it has been for them. And it, that just struck, struck me as, um, as super interesting. I just wanted to put that to you, whether that was consistent with your experience. Well, I've, I've got a little story about that. I, I, I love that book and I can highly recommend it to the listeners. But yes, it is a doorstopper if you, if you get the book version. <laughs> um, you know, since 2009, um, my son uh, has been um, having access to a very flexible, um, self-managed, individualised funding option in New South Wales, Australia. And uh, so consequently, both he and I... At that time, he was just leaving high school, uh, did sort of a lot of uh, talks um, to different community groups and professional groups on the benefits of a very flexible individualised funding approach. And this is before the NDIS. And, you know, how we were able to use that individualised uh, funding to just sit Karim you know, and our family at the kitchen table, uh, ask him for the first time, to my uh, shame, um, what you know, involving him in planning and asking him, what do you want for your life now? And then using that individualised funding in flexible, creative ways to help uh, um, us to help him to achieve what it was that he wanted. And so we, we used to kind of do this circuit and, and uh, do, do talks and, and, you know, it involved me asking questions and him using his communication device to 
to, to, to comment and, and, and co-present and pictures and videos to kind of give people a sense of, of how this has changed um, his life and how it's giving him an opportunity to find himself as a young adult. And I remember that every presentation, I would get teary at different points because I was still processing, even with him as an adult, you know, 19 and, and 20, in early 20s, I was still processing and, and had deep feelings uh, when I talked about uh, Karim building his life. And that would spill over into tears during those presentations. And and yet Karim would just um, slap me on the back of the head, in, you know, <laughs> playfully in, in every presentation when I burst into tears and, and say, come on, mum. Sort of, and, and, you know, that had to happen, you know, half a dozen or a dozen times before I realised I am not helping him in not dealing with my stuff. It's not helpful for him to see me talking about his wonderful best life and for me to get cheery about it because that was giving him a very conflicting message that I think that um, that, that book, Far From The Tree, really expresses. That was me and my feeling that was spilling over into the presentation, whereas the presentation from his perspective was, look at my life. It's awesome. I'm meeting people. I'm doing new things. I'm employing them. I can sack mm. them. You know, this is amazing. I'm finding myself as a young man. You know, it's a coming of age kind of story. And um, and so, at, you know, at some point the penny dropped and um, and Karim and I split as a partnership. And he now presents his own um, show uh, called Karim's Mojo Disco, where where he where Sounds he fun. really challenges. Yeah, he challenges community um, perceptions about disability and and the notion of you know inclusion and and you know being excluded from society, but in a positive, uplifting way. And we had to separate because you know I, I think this is so common is that families talk about even their child's successes with such deep emotion that 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 kind of um, you know sometimes. Uh, sort of, you know, sadness can still come through, which is not help- helpful. At some point, we have to help families to change the balance and allow their child's voice to go stronger. And and I'd say that I learned that lesson way, way too late. Too many slaps on the back of the head. Yeah. Um, but, but thankfully, it's, Karim kept at it. It sounds <laughs> and, like we um, maybe yeah. need some adults with disability to run some how to be a rebel classes. <laughs> so, Sylvana, this has been fantastic. I'd like to finish up by just asking you something a little bit um, personal. Growing up, you grew up in in Sydney a while ago as a young Muslim woman. You wear a hijab and you would have experienced that experience of being other. And there's a whole body of work on other, which I'm sure you're aware of. And then you have a child with a disability and you enter another land of otherness. Did growing up as a Muslim in Sydney inform your approach to disability as a CEO? I, I think, yes, it has in that I think it's made me much more mindful in terms of um, diversity of our workforce at the organisation, but also looking at the kinds of services and opportunities that we offer for families to make sure that we're we're, um, we're open to all families. So I think that personal experience of, of uh, being, I'd say, of a minority group, and, you know, and, and that's certainly sharpened since 2000. I think, you know, prior to 2000, it wasn't, it wasn't um, as, 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 significant as it has been since um, September 11 and that's certainly feeling um, feeling you know the uh, pressure from society and and sort of you know greater scrutiny as a as a, in particular as a Muslim woman so I think being you know personally feeling um, as a minority I, di- I didn't when I first started wearing the hijab when I was a teenager but um, but that has 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 grown I think over the time and, and feeling much more marginalized over the years 
um, where I, uh, you know, where, where, it, where it's even become more intense is when Karim was uh, born, um, I, I guess I kind of almost back then, it was before 2000, just sort of, you know, I was who I was and I didn't really notice that, you know, I, I wore a hijab and oh, I was yeah. you know, mostly in black and looked quite conservative. But when Karim was diagnosed with a disability, I, I sort of would catch myself in a reflection at a shop window or something like that. And I'd see myself with, you know, sort of, you know, quite conservative, you know, Muslim outfit on and then, you know, disabled you know, child in tow, and then suddenly I felt this double whammy of you know Muslim Muslim woman, uh, and then well actually triple then <laughs> Muslim woman, and then you know child with a disability, and, and suddenly I just had this moment where I thought I feel like I'm sort of on the you know on the most minority of the minorities, you know, and um, I, I think it. I think it's made me more sensitive uh, and, and aware of the kinds of um, issues that you know, uh, are faced by lots of different uh, groups in society and that it's a, a fallacy for us to imagine that we can create a one-size-fits-all sort of approach to yeah, supporting people yeah, yeah. in, in organisations. But I think I'm much more attuned to um, the, the reality that, um, you know, all families are different, all children are different. We've got to be inclusive and embracing of everybody and that takes that takes work. And I, I, I don't think that work right now uh, is happening in the context of the changes that we're undergoing with the transformation and, and the you know the change management and the change critique that we're we're dealing with as a part of the NDIS and hopefully we become much more attuned to this in the future. That's such a strong image of um, you seeing yourself in the shop window and I wonder if it's a, uh, a topic for a podcast another time about my experience is that so many of the, the best workers in the disability sector come from an otherness of some sort or another. Um, it doesn't, I don't have to say what that is, but there'll be a bunch of us that are coming from different backgrounds, otherness, difficulty, marginalisation. And I think you're really starting to touch on um, why that can be a very significant advantage in the sector. And I do love that image of seeing yourself in the, in the shop window. Thank you for today. Thank you for the podcast. It's it's been really special. Thanks, Alana. Well, thank you very thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. You've been listening to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC. If you want to read Far From a Tree, you'll find the link in the show notes. We've also got a link to some fantastic papers by the IAC, the Independent Advisory Council that Silvana mentioned. If you want to hear more from us, you can sign up to our newsletter on our website, disabilityservicesconsulting.com.au, or you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Thank you.